Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Cross to Crown podcast. Josh Copen, your humble and obedient servant to the one Doug Gooden. Doug is our wonderful pastor friend, seminary president, ministry director, husband, father, author, counselor, and I better stop there because I'm about to sing Wonderful, Merciful Savior. No, 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 no. But I just realized counselor. And then the next word that literally yes. I want to say was comfort or give like, let's stop there. Uh, Doug, stop. Yes. Glad to be back. And you got a haircut. I have not had one in months. It looks like you got yeah, a haircut. I did. Nice. Yeah. Well, you need one. I desperately need one. But you find time with work and twin babies and and still moving into a new house. And my life is still cardboard boxes, just defined by cardboard boxes. Uh, you can find Doug on the Twitter at Doug Gooden. You can email him, Doug, at uh, crossthecrown.org. I'm on the Twitter at Josh Copen. And uh, my email is joshcopen1981 at gmail.com. Doug will be speaking at the Bunyan Conference in June in Nashville. I believe it's June 20th through the 23rd. Uh, they have a website and you can go find it. A bunch of good speakers there. Doug, Blake White, uh, Jeff Volker, among those who are known in the NCT world. There are others. I think Dr. Gary Long's going to be there. So there's just a ton of people who are going to be there. And this year's theme is Galatians, correct? They're just everyone's walking through the book of Galatians, which between Galatians, Hebrews and, well, Second Corinthians, I think you could pop those up as the new covenant go to text to, to embrace uh, new covenant theology. Well, just little quick view of Galatians and why that's so important to new covenant people. The message of Galatians is basically Paul dealing with a group of churches in the Galatia area that have been inundated with Judaism. Uh, we don't know exactly what the makeup was. Uh, my suspicion is it's a lot of pagans who became Christians. And then uh, seems like everywhere Paul went, the uh, Judaizers were quick to follow and they followed him in there and started trying to pull these, uh, these Christians to the law and saying, look, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to be right with God, you've got to keep the Mosaic law, you need to be circumc circumcised and all of that. And uh, by the time Paul writes this letter, uh, he's being attacked. He's been accused of all kinds of things. And, uh, and he, he really brings out some of the big guns and hammers the Judaizers for what they're doing and saying, look to the Christians, if you are circumcised and put yourself under this law of Moses, you've got to keep the whole law and you'll be cursed if you don't keep the whole law. You don't want to do that. Stick to your sufficiency of Christ and the gospel and that kind of thing. So it's a it's a pretty hard book, pretty pretty uh, harsh uh, words from Paul, but the gospel's on the line. So he has to drill into that. I can't remember who brought it up. I think it was Peter Muth, um, who's a New Covenant pastor in Phoenix, uh, did a study through Galatians 3 and 4 and quoted a few covenant people, said this, these texts are the toughest for us as covenant people to reconcile. These are the ones that we have to struggle with to say, no, covenant theology still fits in the framework, even with what is said here. So I think that is interesting that even many covenant people acknowledge there has to be some kind of, for lack of a better term, workaround of Galatians 3 and 4 to get to where you could hold to a covenantal view. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, Paul asks the question in Galatians 3, why did God give the law? 
And he doesn't say, because the law is the eternal moral standard of righteousness, he doesn't say anything the covenant guys want to say. He says it was given because they're sinners, and it was to expose their transgressions and keep them in custody until the time of faith would come. And we're no longer under that pedagogue. The Jews are no longer under that covenant. Uh, we're children of Abraham by faith and faith alone, and the law served its purpose. And it's really a, a history argument, a, a history of redemption argument, that the law had its place and its time. Time, but now that has been superseded by the new covenant. So yeah, it'd be very difficult. And then chapter four, of course, he he compares the old covenant to the offspring of Hagar, the handmaiden. And so setting aside covenant theology for a minute, if you're a Jew and you're in the congregation in Galatia and the pastor stands up to read, because that's how it worked, right? He would send his letters and the pastor would stand up and read these letters from Paul. So you can imagine a setting where you've got a group of Christians and there are some Judaizers in the in the midst, and this guy starts reading these words from Paul that uh, you Jews are from Hagar, not from Sarah. Oh man, those are fighting words. No wonder they wanted to beat Paul up everywhere he went. And, and Covenant guys see that too. There's not a lot of room to bring in the law if he's placing that entire system under Hagar rather than Sarah. Of course, they do have their, their workarounds, but they have to work at it. Yeah, and I remember reading Schreiner's commentary on it. It's like, if ever there was a time to say baptism is the continuation of circumcision as the sign of the covenant, it would be here, and mm -hmm. it's nowhere to be found, and it's a pretty interesting argument. You know, at the end of Galatians, Paul says, basically praise, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to be beaten anymore. I I've been beaten enough. I'm kind of tired of that. Um, I think sometimes uh, this podcast, we do focus on manhood and things like that. You could sit there and go, hey, man, come on. You you you're Paul. You're you're supposed to be able to take this. What's up? We're supposed to be able to take the chains and the beatings for Christ. We're called to do that. But as a man and, and I've been through some emotional turmoil. I know you have. We all have where you eventually kind of find yourself praying, Lord, I know it's your will what's happening, but I just don't know if I can take any more of this right now. Uh, is that that could be kind of hard as a man to get to that point, isn't it? But it's OK to say, I want this suffering to be over, but I will trust your will as well. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. We we shouldn't seek after affliction. We're not told to do that. Uh, we should also not be surprised when it comes. And, you know, we grow through it. We learn through it. We are humbled. We're disciplined. We, we um, and ultimately Romans 5, it ends up with hope for us. So we welcome it in that sense. But there, it's not a weakness to say, oh, Lord, let this cup pass for me. I mean, our Lord, the, the perfect man, the son of God himself said, Father, let this cup pass for me. And then the father said, no, you have to endure what I've laid out here. And and then he did it, and he did it uh, trusting and did it in faith. But even that is fascinating. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus learned obedience through suffering. We think, how can, a, how can the Son of God learn anything? Well, he did learn things in his manhood, and he learned it through suffering. And his suffering could only have been unjust suffering. He didn't, he didn't deserve any, any suffering. He suffered unjustly, and yet he learned to obey the Father. And that's the posture we need to take. But yeah, absolutely, say, Lord, uh, uncle, <laughs> relief, please send relief or send, uh, send the grace to get through this. This is hard. Uh, I think that's right and appropriate because we're saying to him, I will only survive this and learn from it if you give me the strength. Right. And, you know, Jesus has said as a, as a child, when we see him uh, when he's born, his, uh, 
uh, and then uh, his circumcision. Then when he's a little bit uh, uh, an older boy and then that's it. But it says he grows in wisdom and stature, meaning he mm-hmm. learned. And uh, I know there's been some controversy over what Dr. Thomas, Derek Thomas said a couple years ago, G3 conference, but I did hear him say something. Jesus had to be perfectly man. Otherwise he's not our representative without him being perfectly man. And that includes chromosomes and learning and things like that. But it was the stature in which he learned in which he served his father. And given that um, this obviously would apply to women too, in terms of growing in stature and wanting to become more like Christ, but as a man, um, how important is that, that we seek wisdom, that we seek knowledge, that we seek these things, not from a Gnosticism kind of view, obviously, but God caused us, he created us with brains to grow and to understand. Adam walked and talked with God. He got to pick his brain, if you will, and understand things. Adam was the smartest man who ever lived outside of Christ, right? So why is knowledge and wisdom something men should seek after? Yeah, I was just thinking about what you said there. Is was Adam the smart? I don't know if we if we have any justification for the claim that Adam was the smartest man outside of Jesus. Um, I'm going with it. It's my theory. That's fine. Okay. I yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, he, he, he lived without sin. He got to talk with God. His brain wasn't fogged up by, at, at least for the time, personal pride and and conflict and overthinking and things like that. So that's why I would sure. Yeah, morally, he certainly was righteous, unlike any other man. But yeah, does that name mean all he... the animals and plants <laughs> and things? It's pretty like that's it's a lot. That's true, but you know, some of those names you think maybe it wasn't so wise. Um, yeah, yes, we must seek wisdom. I mean, we're commanded to. Uh, we have the entire book of Proverbs, for instance, which is written uh, for us from a father to a son, saying, "Learn these things." And just because we have the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant and we have uh, the gospel and and the fullness of Christ, does not mean we've learned everything. In fact, that would be arrogant to say that we have. Uh, we have to pursue wisdom. We are to seek many counselors. We're to. Uh, it, it's really humility, right? It's it's saying, "I have not yet." learned everything there is to learn morally or intellectually. So we need people to come alongside and and stimulate us to love and good deeds. As the writer of Hebrews says, we also need to grow in our understanding of how the world works, what God wants us to do, how to make the right decisions. Uh, As you're going to learn uh, as a parent of two young daughters, uh, it won't be very long till you will realize how unwise you are in many things. And you'll desperately be wanting those who've gone before you to say, how do I do this? How do I discipline them? How do I encourage them? How do I raise daughters? I mean, you know, uh, girls are, are different to boys. I know what it's like to be a boy. I don't know what it's like to be a girl. And, uh, and so you, you, we must realize we have learning to do in all of those things. And yeah, so we got to grow. And, and as you brought up, Jesus grew not only in uh, learning obedience that I refer to, but he learned wisdom. Uh, that boggles my mind. But it's also encouraging. We have the same spirit that he had. In one of my seminary classes, I require the students to look at all the uh, occurrences of the word spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And I do that because I want them to see everything Jesus did in his humanity is attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit. We have that same spirit. So we should expect to grow in our knowledge and wisdom and obedience and all of those things because we have the same spirit that Jesus did. He didn't have the sinful this predisposition that we have that we have to fight against, but he did have to grow and the spirit enabled him to do that. Well, and from a manhood standpoint of growing in wisdom and stature, whether you're single or married, your home is kind of your kingdom, if you will. And you have to be able to know things to take care of things, take care of your finances. I know you've touched on that before. 
how to lead well, how to be a good husband, how to just be a good, if you're a single man, I know this sounds probably weak, but I don't mean homemaker, right? Like you're, you're the one in charge. You got to know how to cook. You got to know how to clean. You got to know how to do all these things. And I think manhood gets caught up sometimes in two things is finances, which is, I understand that and being strong. And that's important too, but that isn't necessarily just that wisdom helps create mental strength, which we can have a great discussion sometime on anxiety and mental issues and things like that. But being mentally strong is part of being a man. I think your wife naturally expects you to lead well in that, to be the, the rock. And when we talk about being the rock, it, it doesn't just mean you're strong physically. It means you're strong mentally there for your family as well. Absolutely. Everything in life, everything we do, uh, you know, requires wisdom. We're making choices every day. And we are leaders, whether it's a leader of one, if I'm single, leader of two, if I'm married, leader of more than that, if I have children and we have our jobs, all these different arenas, we are leaders, we are decision makers. Uh, everything requires more and more wisdom, more learning. We're going to make some bad decisions. Okay, fine. Gracious, accept that and, and learn from it so that you make a better one next time. But of course, all of life, we, we have to be growing in wisdom. I don't know uh, all the classes taught there at the New Covenant School of Theology, but is, it, is there an ethics class? Like, could you make the argument that you can make the wrong choice, but it's not sin? Like the Lord gives you two job opportunities. You take the one. It turns out we kind of talked about it, it wasn't right, but that didn't mean you sinned because you took that choice. Is that a fair question to ask or a statement to make? Yeah. I mean, in that scenario, how would you even determine whether it was right. the right one or the wrong one? Mm -hmm. um, you may look back and say, okay, there was a wiser course, which maybe gets at the root of the question is, is folly. Is it making a, an unwise choice? Is that sinful? At the end of the day, does it really matter? The point is there's grace and forgiveness. Now learn to make a better decision in the future. Yeah. And Christianity isn't one. I think a lot of people will accuse uh, us in the little, our reform community, if we will, of Sarah, right? We'll just sit back. We'll ever let be, will be. God is in control. It's good. And some people say we make that argument about trying to save people and or whatever life decisions. Like if you're single, I'm just going to sit back and a wife's going to fall in my lap. No, you got to ask people out. You got to get to know them. They got to like you. You got to like them back. All these things. Um, but if it's all done under the, the desire to be honoring to God and, and, and what he has laid out for you, then you're good, right? Like, I mean, I just, sometimes we overthink the freedom we have too. I think there's a real struggle there. Yeah. And so-called hyper grace. Uh, yeah. Yes. All, everything that we achieve is ultimately attributed to attributable to God's grace in our lives, but we are constantly exhorted to work hard for everything in this life. Uh, so the person who just said, let go and let God is not a biblical concept. We are to rest in him when things aren't going well, when we're trying hard and it doesn't seem to, like the Lord is blessing or the doors are closed or whatever. We rest in the Lord. We trust the Lord. We wait on him, but we're to go after life in all that he's given us uh, to pursue. And that's not arrogant. That's not uh, a lack of faith. That's obedience. And he tells us to do that. Uh, so yeah, just sitting around, letting God bring whatever he wants in our lives. That is not the biblical uh, exhortation. Yeah, the seize the day mentality can be both biblical or it could be self-focused. So you got to be careful how you kind of uh, approach it. Uh, we mentioned earlier Galatians and uh, the, the um, I apologize, every I'm a little sick. There's some cold running through our house. Um, and, and Doug, uh, with Galatians, one of the things that New Covenant people run to is that book. You mentioned chapter three and chapter four and then Hebrews, like 
please explain to me what the uh, when there's a change of priesthood, there's a change of law. Like what law? Right. Because it seems pretty black and white there to me. We get accused of being Marcionites. And if people don't know what that means, basically, Marcion had his own Bible. He took a he didn't even have all the books of the New Testament. He had a certain amount of books, didn't have the Old Testament and said, boom, this is all you need to grow and, and to be a Christian. We get accused of that, especially of ignoring the Old Testament. Why is that not a fair charge? And how does New Covenant theology, what they'll learn too at the, at the New Covenant School of Theology, how do we approach the Old Testament if we say we're not under the Mosaic Law? Jeremiah 29, 11 doesn't apply to us. Um, we weren't exiled. So how does that work? Well, that's a huge question. Uh, so I'll try to give, yeah. give a 30,000 foot view Sorry. here. Um, yeah, so uh, Andy Stanley, of course, a year ago or so, maybe it's longer than that now, he raised uh, a lot of ire, justifiably so, for his statement, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. And uh, back in one of my previous hosts, uh, who's much bigger and stronger than you, because uh, he works out a ton, uh, he asked me a I don't question. I why that shot was necessary. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with anything. His calves are, pro- anyway. Yeah. Um, he, he, he drew that out of me. We talked about that a little bit. And I said, well, I certainly don't, would not agree to the statement we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. I kind of like the imagery if we're talking about Old Covenant, because the Old Covenant is not the same thing as the Old Testament. So don't hear me agreeing with Andy Stanley here. Uh, but the idea of, I, I do like the metaphor of we have a hitch on our, on our back of our truck and we are no longer hitched to the old covenant. That covenant was removed from the hitch and set aside, and Jesus hitched the new covenant to our truck, and and that's uh, what's behind us. It it breaks down like all the metaphors. But what so easily is confusing here is that people identify the old covenant and Old Testament. All the Old Testament is inspired by God and profitable for new covenant Christians. Uh, Paul writing to Timothy says that, and the only scripture he could have been referring to at the time is the Old Testament scriptures, because that's all they had. Uh, And he says, all scriptures inspired. So we do not jettison the Old Testament. It is all inspired. The question is, what is the purpose of the writing of the Old Testament? And and there are many. Uh, Adam is there. And Jesus is called the last Adam. So we need to go back and read about Adam to learn why Jesus would be called the the last Adam or the second Adam. uh, Adam, the first one created, or he was created in the garden. And and Jesus creates this this new garden, if you will, the ultimate uh, garden of Eden, which we see in in the book of Revelation and so on. Uh, We have Abraham. The promises that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ start with Abraham. You could argue it starts earlier. The law, though, this is where the rub comes, and this is where we get accused of being a Marcionite. The law given through Moses was for the nation of Israel. It's not for uh, Americans. It wasn't for the Philistines. It was for Israel. And so the law of Moses, we say, because the Bible says it, it was for Israel and only for Israel. So I don't go looking through Deuteronomy to see how I'm to obey God. That's not my law. They don't cut it out of the Bible. We read it. I just finished months now of working through, I'm almost done with Nehemiah. Uh, I've been working through the law and the historical narratives uh, and those books. I'm going to move into the prophets here pretty soon. And every day I read Psalms and and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. I, I work my way through those wisdom literature because there is much wisdom to be gained there. 
but it's all in the context of the old covenant law, which is not my law. So any new covenant theology guy who says we can disregard any Old Testament scripture, well, he's wrong. Uh, we can't disregard it. The question is, what is its purpose? Is it intended to give us commands? No, it's to give us the uh, the prehistory of Jesus Christ, I would say, in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. We were going through, when I was a member of Jeff Volker's uh, church there in Phoenix, the New Covenant uh, Bible Fellowship, he was going through Deuteronomy and uh, dealing with the punishment section uh, there where they were punished for not obeying and all those things. And he took us to 1 John and showed us that there is now no punishment for those who are in Christ. All of that has been removed. So a Christian is never under a veil of punishment. We're under a veil of discipline, if you will. It can still happen, but it is never punishment. And that's how I was like, oh, so that's how Deuteronomy fits into. And it was just it made it so easy. So anyone accuses a true New Covenant theologian of being a Marcionite just doesn't get it. And it's a straw man argument at best. It's, it's really not fair, but it's a good discussion to have. No, let's show you how Deuteronomy fits in the framework of of this theology. And um, you go through that uh, at New Covenant School. It's part of your biblical theology class, if you will, versus systematic theology. I noticed that. Yeah, we have a biblical theology class, which we try to explain what biblical theology is. And we walk through most of the Old Testament, obviously at a very high level, to, to show how the, the story of Christ unfolds. Then we have two classes uh, called the Glory of the New Covenant 1 and Glory of the New Covenant 2, where we actually spend a ton, the whole class is designed to show the role of the Old Covenant in the history of redemption and how it's not the same thing as the new covenant. And then we keep coming back to this in our Romans class and uh, in our historical narratives class. Uh, so we keep coming back to these same themes. So our students understand what role the old covenant plays in the scripture. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget um, uh, you at the Laurelville conference going through the story of Joseph. And um, it is a great section to go to for God's providence and God's sovereignty, but that's not the theme of Joseph. It's not overcoming adversity, although that's true. It's not overcoming sexual temptation, although that's true. That's there. The whole point is it ultimately leads to God's people coming into Israel and fulfilling and Christ being a fulfillment of all the land promises and our peace and rest in Christ. And none of that happens unless Joseph is in Egypt and enslaved. And it's like, oh, that was really good. And I think that helps like people like my grandmother see that who will read through that and knows the story but maybe at times has never seen the true pointing to Christ in that. I mean, I, she's smart enough to know that's a shadow and type of Christ, but maybe not see the whole, as we would like to say, the 35,000 foot view. And you do a really good job of laying that out there at the school. I think that's good for people to see. Yeah. As I tell our students, and I probably said this at Lauraville, if I'm teaching on sexual purity, if I'm talking to young men, for instance, that are dating girls and, or, you know, tempted to porn, of course, I'm going to use, Joseph, as an example, he fled immorality, right? He had this woman clamoring for him like he, she, she was wanting him and he ran out even without his cloak. And I think that's what Paul's alluding to in 1 Corinthians when he says flee immorality. That word flee uh, certainly seems to be tied to Joseph. So he's a great illustration of that. But if you're preaching through Genesis and you get to that section on Joseph fleeing immorality, uh, if what your people come away with is mostly don't look at porn, don't have sex with your girlfriend, you've missed the entire point of why that's in your Bible. If he doesn't uh, get seduced by Potiphar's wife, he doesn't go to jail 
and he does not become the second in command over all of Egypt so that the Israelites can be there and prepare for the Exodus in the book of Exodus. That's what's going on. So we must not confuse the illustrative benefit of Joseph with God's reason for putting that in the scripture. Right. And again, how he gets you to Christ is great, as you said, or again, to go back in Genesis earlier, Noah. Noah is both a shadow and type of Christ. And of course, the ark itself is Christ mm-hmm. protecting God's people from God's wrath and, and judgment. And so those are and there's so many things, too. I remember uh, it was you or, or my Gargab right there showing me the Exodus. Obviously, we all know the Exodus is the ultimate uh, Old Testament picture of Christ. But like even the the plagues, like the next to the last plague, the last plague, of course, is the death of the firstborn. The next to the last one is the darkness over the land. What happens when Christ is on the cross and God's wrath is being poured out is darkness all over mm-hmm. the land, signaling judgment is about to happen or is happening. It's just like, oh, I think you did mm-hmm. that. The whole Paul thing, Paul going to Jesus seminary for those years before he mm-hmm. went out and started preaching the gospel. Oh, I get all that now. It makes sense. So the Old Testament's great, but without the New Testament, that's why we say kind of read it back to front, right? Like mm-hmm. you want to come here and then go, oh, now this makes sense. So, yeah, once you get it I, in the biblical theology class, I talk about a, a puzzle and you got to know what the picture looks like before you can see how these individual pieces fit together. Right. So on the front of the box is Jesus. Everything in the scripture, the, the whole puzzle is Jesus. When you get done, it has to look like Jesus. So now that you know that. Now you can go back and start putting the pulling the pieces out of the pile and saying, okay, how does this fit together to get me to the picture of Jesus? Yeah, that's good. I, I really appreciate it. And I encourage people to do that. I know I've mentioned it a thousand times, but New Covenant School Theology, uh, org. Last question. Um, it's something I struggle with. You and I have talked about privately. What do we do? This is such a loaded question, especially in evangelism today. But what do we do with Hillsong's music? Um, I know that it's completely smashing out of one topic into another. I'm smooth that way. But what do we do <laughs> with Hillsong's music? Because some of it, if you were to read through, you go, they're just singing Isaiah. They're singing about the suffering servant or they're singing about the Trinity and how the church came to be like there's I would find zero wrong with several of their songs. What do we do with that? Because they're preaching and what they stand for. Yeah, you know, like, what do we do? Yeah, it's a, it is a tough, tough question. I, I'll tell you what we do and some of my rationale, and certainly people will disagree with it, and that's okay. Um, we don't jettison songs simply because of the organization they came from. So bottom line is, at our church, we still sing some of the Hillsong music. Uh, but I understand why some would say that's that's horrible. Uh, you know, it's so hard it's, it, to broaden the, the question out. My uh, uh, one of the one of our staff gals came to me uh, after the Ravi Zacharias stuff came out and said, "We've got a whole bunch of his books in our church library. Do we get rid of them?" Before that, Artaxerxes. Uh, he's written one of my favorite books on preaching, Spirit Empowered Preaching, and I used it with our students. And the question was, do we continue to use it? It's a great. Uh, it's just wonderful. And his sermons. He's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. And uh, I understand he's rejoined the preaching circuit recently in uh, some form. And you start thinking, ah, is that, is that okay? At what point, you know, he's not pastoring as far as I know, but will this lead to that? Is it all those, those, these are hard, hard questions. Um, Where I've come down is uh, I'm just not ready to jettison a, a good song because of the 
failure of the ones who wrote it and produced it. We think of it as well, right? Horatio, uh, uh, what's his last name? Spoffman or whatever. Um, his the, That song, It Is Well With My Soul, what a great song. It was born out of tremendous tragedy. His four daughters killed in an accident when a boat is is run through by another boat and, and his daughters died. He lost other children, wrote this song, and then he becomes basically a universalist cult leader before he dies. I don't know anybody who's clamoring and saying we should stop singing it as well because he jumped off the, the cliff theologically at the end of his days. Now, it is a little bit different with the Hillsong stuff because it's so prevalent and so popular. And here's what I am concerned about as a pastor. If any of our people uh, see, oh, this song we're singing is done by Hillsong, and they go trace down what else have has Hillsong produced and written, and then they get into any of the Hillsong theology, as a shepherd now, I could be opening the door for some of my sheep to go down a very, very bad path theologically. So we have to be on guard about that. And if I hear that going on, if any of the elders hear that going on among our people, then we'd have conversations and maybe even say, hey, don't follow them. And eventually I would I would be open to eliminating them from our playlist altogether. But I'm just not convinced because of what you're saying. The, the lyrics are great. They're right out of the scripture and they're singable. That's so much new music is not singable today. It seems to me, or it's just boring as can be. So, Write a lyric, I, you know, quit repeating the same thing over and over. Right. Again. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard all the way around. Uh, we did set aside the Ravi Zacharias books for a while, and uh, I don't use the Artazurdia book uh, so much. I, I'm torn on those as well. So I, it's a tough one, man. Yeah, well, and it's tough too. Come Thou Found. There's some talk about the guy who wrote that song. Did he walk away? Did he not? There's uh, mm. conflicting reports about his faith. He um, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Um, I think he was quoted as saying, yeah, I wish I believed that still. Huh. So, But, you just, know, we talked about last week or the time before Martin Luther teaching that God creates faith in babies through baptism. If that was not uh, spoken by Martin Luther, if somebody today showed up and said, hey, I think God puts faith in that baby through baptism, I think most of the Reformed, conservative, and New Covenant theology camps would say, we want nothing to do with that. But because it's Martin Luther, and because of what he did, we sort of give him a pass on that. But we sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God without any any hesitancy, right? So Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about like we would disagree with um, a lot of the social justice side of, of Tim Keller and some things that he said. But his book on prayer, his book on suffering are amazing. Like they're just good. I would especially his book on prayer. I would gladly hand to someone and be mm-hmm. like, so, yeah, I mean, what do you do? Are you endorsing the person or, you know, it's it's kind of the struggle that the, the reform community and theological community went through with N.T. Wright. He kind of maybe raised some good points but went way too far. So it's kind of like, okay, read this, but it, yeah, I mean, it's just a struggle, right? It's, it's up to each person to, cause you're not saying it's an endorsement. You're sending your kids. If you're in a situation, you don't have the ability to homeschool privacy, you send them to public school, the guarantee there's going to be things there that you don't endorse, but you got to sit there and, you know, when they come home, all right, what did you learn? Let's talk about it, Right. So. Yeah, I think it's yeah and I do think there's a difference between uh, disagreements we have with Tim Keller and just rank heresy. And, yep. you know, uh, there's a case to be made that some of the stuff that comes out of Hillsong as an organization 
is just heresy. Mm. It, it, it's a false gospel. Um, and same thing with, uh, with Bethel, you know, those are, it's just, it's hard. And, and again, from a pastor, from a, from looking at my congregation standpoint, if I think they are adopting anything from Hillsong or Bethel outside of singing this song, then I'm willing to jettison the whole thing, get rid of it, get rid of it all and say, don't go there because it's too dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. If, I agree. if our people are just singing the song and really don't even know much about Hillsong, uh, I don't, I don't know that I care where the song came from, but we have to be wise and be open and, and realize eh, I could be wrong about this. I, I could find out later that I, I you know, I could regret our, our, our elders could regret our decision. I would also caution those on the other side who just, it's a slam dunk for them. This is heresy. This is wrong. You should never sing. We, we have people in our church, by the way, who sit down every time a Hillsong song is played. They just won't sing it and they sit down in protest. I, I sit in the front row, so I didn't know that. I just learned this recently that we have a, a few people in this couple of rows that sit down and, and that bothers me uh, on two levels. And I'm not sure what we should do about that. So I'm not indifferent to it. I would say those, uh, again, those on the other side that say, absolutely, we should never sing a Hillsong song. Be gracious and, and try to understand why somebody might still use the, the songs. You can disagree with them, but Let's be careful in our rhetoric toward one another about this. Yeah, yeah. Romans, uh, we talked about before. Romans 14 is uh, kind of been camping in my head. There's a lot of things we should probably be willing to have gracious disagreement on versus separation yeah. on. So, yeah. all right, Doug at crossthecrown.org uh, if you want to email him. And he's on Twitter at Doug Gooden, uh, at Josh Copen for me. And we'll gladly take your questions. And I keep forgetting to do this when I was supposed to do this. Rate, review, subscribe, subscribe, rate, review, whatever it is. Leave your comments, likes. The first three have been pretty well received and we appreciate that. So we hope you, uh, actually, this is the fifth one, right? We had, yeah, yeah. So uh, the first three or four have been pretty well received and we hope you uh, enjoy these as well. And Doug, as always, what, what do we charge people to do? Live your life intentionally Christ-obsessed in all things.